following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. It's really well with this. Um, I had some missionary friends that began to work in Iraq right after um, the second major invasion and had a really good partnership with tribal leaders. And the tribal leaders were saying, you come in and teach us how to dig wells, teach us how to strengthen our communities, and we're yours. Uh, we've been neglected and abused um, by the regime that was in here, and we're totally open. We know you're Christian, and yet we're willing to learn from you because what's been our experience hasn't been working. And... Um, some missionary leadership, some political leadership said, no, we want everybody in the green zone. And so they pulled everyone to Baghdad. And honestly, I think part of the reason that we have ISIS flourishing the way it is is a lack of courage and insight that people ought to have applied to say what it would take to engage people where there's crisis and have a painful, disordered world engage with a meaningful gospel that um, deals with pain and suffering and uncertainty and how to rally around uh, what to do about that. Uh, and so South Sudan, same thing. You've got Muslims in the north, Christians in the south, and horrific things that are going on is this class of civilizations, and one of the best ways to fight against it is to provide meaningful support to communities to hold together and say in the gospel there's a way for us to unite that's includes spiritual conceptual stuff as well as interpersonal relationship but also practical dominion over the physical world that god created and so part of what we've been doing in here is taking these really huge ideas of the gospel sinking them down into something manageable uh, to where we begin to have a framework where we can move quickly from very big ideas to very specific ideas so the two big ideas we're going to talk about is the totality of all human suffering and why to go to church all right, that sounds like a good objective. So we got 45 minutes to solve the problem of all human suffering. And why do we go to church every Sunday, especially when there's sports and stuff on? <laughs> By the way, we're not having the Grove this Sunday night because of the Super Bowl. And um, I'll come up with some sort of spiritual justification for it later. I haven't <laughs> figured that out. But... Um, we know, that we know where we want to end up. We just haven't figured out how to spin it yet to where it sounds noble and spiritual. But I'm a professional. Don't worry. All right, here's the one-minute version of Crown Heart World. And we took the training wheels off. You guys that have been here for three or four weeks, you guys have to coach the people who haven't been here by trying to draw it out. So this is your chance to see if you remember it. I had singles, uh, well, college-age students, actually, out at Hunt Retreat one time. And I didn't give them any content whatsoever. I said, look at this for one minute and see if you can re re reproduce it from memory alone. And they took the challenge, showed it to them, took it down, and their success rate was incredible. Uh, when Pastor Greg preached this last week and he had the timeline, he kept apologizing. This is so much information, right? Several guys afterwards, we were talking at another thing. They said there were like five points of information. If I was challenged at my job to memorize five points of information, I could do it in just a couple of minutes. At times, we're under-challenged. Seriously. 
Uh, I had it when I was in uh, North Carolina. Uh, there people thought, well, Bible study is too complicated. And then I started asking them statistics about Duke, Carolina, and they were giving me, like, detailed stats from 78. I'm like, there's no cognitive issue here. No. It's a matter of, does this really matter? And is it really interesting and compelling to me? If they really care, I'll dominate this. I'll be able to crank it out. So now, now I've given you a macho challenge to see if you can draw my picture. All right, here we go. One-minute version. Ready? We'll see if the sound works. All right, y'all can like pick someone at your table to do the main drawing, and as a group, you can help do it. First, just do column one real quick. Somebody grab a blank sheet of paper. There's only three symbols on here, so we're going to start top to bottom on column one. Or you can all do it if you want for practice. And we also want to say... What is this in the biblical story, and what is this in our experiences? Yeah, one of the reasons to do just column one is because it gets confusing to people, the three-syllable name. They're like crown world circle or <laughs> crown heart something. So just a crown, then a heart, then a world. Yeah, there we go. It's called a chiastic structure, ABC, CBA. Now, go on to chat, column two as well. I want to learn from how you guys are experiencing this. What stuff that comes easy? What stuff that's a little hard to remember or that people disagree with in trying to remember how to say it? Yeah, Eric. Yeah, to actually, yeah, on the video, it's too much of a hassle to get the guy to fix it because he's doing uh, footage in the jungles of Burma. <laughs> and so it should be like a giant W effect. So down, up, down, up, and then down, up, but it really doesn't matter. The, the main deal is, what's this first one tell us about? Yeah, so the first thing is theologically is creation. Why there's something instead of nothing. And it's really fun to listen to Richard Dawkins explain the definition of nothing. There was nothing and then there was something. And how do you get nothing from something? Well, scientific nothing is not the same nothing as you normal people think nothing is. And then he stumbles really, really hard. So it's a really profound question. Why is there something instead of nothing? 
and we believe a self-existent God created the cosmos and he created humanity in this unique role that we have an overlap with the creator and the creation. And that our role is in knowing the creator to rightly rule over creation, not to exploit it, but to cause it to flourish. To take the resources and to make the world better, not worse. It's what we do with our families. That's what we do in agriculture. It's what we do in industry. It's what we do in society. Done rightly, that's what it's intended to do. So creation has this sense of purpose and meaning for humanity. And how do we connect it with everyday common experiences? Eric made reference to it. What's the simple one-word reminder for column one when we experience what? Love is the purpose of humanity. Um, the super simple thing is when we experience good, whether it includes love, meaning, coffee, touchdown, interception, Shiloh. Shiloh does well. And even if you're for the Panthers, you're still, like, grateful for Shiloh doing well. And so you're like, that's just good. So anytime we experience good, we believe that it corresponds to how things ought to be. Which then, what's column two going to be when we experience bad, when things are wrong, they're wonky, they're messed up, they're not the way they're supposed to be, things are out of order. And so, I, yeah, I heard over here that for phonetic sake we use, instead of saying creation fall, we say creation separation, redemption, transformation, completion, right? Malcolm's working with me. I'm uh, coming up with the rap version of this. Seriously, he's like, he's going to crank one out for me. He loves it. All right, so what is out of order in column two? We have no connection with God. The heart's upside down. Right, then our access to God is blocked. All right, good. So the two things that are out of order are humanity and creation. God's not out of order. The reason we can't experience God and understand God is because our authority over creation has now been subordinated to where creation rules over us instead of us ruling over creation. When you hear about the powers and the principalities in Ephesians and other places like that or spiritual warfare, the idea is that humanity gave over to the serpent the authority over creation to wreak havoc and death. We stepped away from God. God doesn't have the key to the cabinet where life is stored. Life is in God. Separation from God is separation from life. And as a result of that separation, we go from life to death. You know what we need to do to die? Just wait. It's going to happen. You don't have to do anything at it. It's, it's, it's on. It's just a matter of we can expedite it, but... Until we get reconnected with the source of life, we're moving from life to death. And so the inversion of the order of creation over humanity instead of humanity over creation in relationship to the creator. That's what's all messed up. And the panicked element here is why we have impulse issues. Why is men, um, food, sex, and violence are three biggies, and then you can have derivatives that come out of those. But strong impulses, I want, I get. And it's because we don't have the restraint and composure under the creator to say everything is good and beautiful in its own time. Instead, we're taught to be aggressive and assertive and grab 
satisfaction as quickly and effectively as we can. But it doesn't ultimately work. And so you hear people my age that talk about they wish they could start over. Well, not at my age. My age, you still lie and pretend like you're going to solve it all. You get slightly older and you've given up on trying to pretend like it doesn't bother you that you've disappointed in your promises or in all sorts of other relationships. Then you begin to be more transparent and say, I just didn't know another way except dominating. And it hasn't brought me the peace and satisfaction and self-respect, much less public respect, that I'd always wanted. So good and bad experiences are in one and two. Any questions on that section? And in connecting with people, this is really good. You're not having to make super big, complicated arguments about when did creation happen and let's get into an evolution debate and stuff. The point is not when and where it happened. The point is, why is there anything that exists at all, and what's the ultimate source whenever and however it happened? I totally recommend suspending that debate. It's not necessary. There's a place for it later on, but in debating the, ish, the minor issues, you forget the main point, which is, why are we even here able to debate at all? Because we've been giving a spiritual will, and we're trying to win the debate with each other. That's because God gave us the sense of will. So what's the solution to these two problems? What's something you see embedded in column three that represents column two? Where do you see columns one and two represented in column three? The story of Jesus is all about the redemption of humanity. So what he does is he takes on the role of the, of the first Adam. He becomes the second Adam. Anybody remember the major passages that Paul uses to use that language? Romans 5 is a big one. The first Adam brought us into death. The second Adam brings us out. It says God demonstrates his love for us in this, that why we were yet sinners, why we were totally unqualified to be loving, why we had a close case against us, that we were deserving of death, Christ died for us. And that's the idea that we totally didn't deserve it, and we don't get to where we deserve it, and then accept Christ, why we're all messed up, Christ died for us. And in then 1 Corinthians, you may remember the second one, the resurrection passage, 1 Corinthians 15, you get the same thing. And it's really important, 1 Corinthians 15 makes the argument of the resurrection, and it talks about the physical nature of the resurrection, which is really important to um, why we like breakfast tacos and coffee and so on, is that it's not just saving our spirits to go to cloudy land someday. It's saving our spirits and our bodies so that heaven and earth are reconciled, like in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The way you run stuff up there, run it down here. Give us our food. Help us to have forgiveness. Help us to be loyal, is the Lord's Prayer. So you see the good in column one, relived in the life of Christ. That's how humanity ought to live. How did Jesus deal with bullies? It's like they're going to stone the woman caught in adultery or he's being put on the spot about Roman taxes or other stuff. Huh? Yeah, he talked to him in parables and he stood up to him. You look at uh, Matthew 23, Jesus just goes off on religious bullies. Religious or political bullies, Jesus has no patience. How does Jesus deal with people who are broken and admit it? Compassion and mercy. And so Micah 6.8 says, 
you've got justice and you've got mercy. So if someone's playing tough, Jesus will play tough with them, and his justice is greater than, than their stubbornness. If someone is broken and open, he extends mercy. And it's the same way in parenting. You get a rebellious child, you've got to win the debate. You're the parent, they're the child. You have a child that is sorry and is confused and hurt, you immediately switch to merciful and you stop having to execute justice. They get it. You get the same thing out of 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due season. So you see humanity it's supposed to be. So why is the upside-down heart of column 2 showing up at the bottom of the cross in column 3? What's that? Man is still broken, but who is this? Yeah, because man is still broken, Christ takes our place. This is 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so he takes on our debt on himself. And so we see the problem of humanity in columns 1 and 2 is really broad, but in Jesus, the human problem of what does it mean to really be a man who lives rightly is lived in Jesus. He's tough and he's merciful and he gets it right every time. We usually don't get it right quite every time. We're merciful when we should be tough and we're tough when we should be merciful. He gets it right, but he extends his goodness to us. Which is greater, his good or our bad? His good is greater than our bad. That's the point of the resurrection. The Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son, the payment of our debt. And as a result, there's new hope. Now we skip to column five, usually when we present the gospel. Now you can go to heaven when you die, which is a true statement. But it's not the next statement in the gospel. Matter of fact, you never see the gospel presented that way in the Bible, except for the thief on the cross because he's in the process of dying in that moment. Yeah, and he needs to hear that, and he does. He says, you will be with me in paradise today. But even there, the language is really kind of not fitting the way we say stuff. And the apostles, when they preach in the book of Acts, every time they preach, they talk about life and death. They never once talk about heaven and hell. They talk about it in a way that includes God's wrath and judgment against us that you can then tease out these ideas of what the implications of judgment in heaven and so forth but their point of contact with other human beings in their proclamation is that God is righteously solving the problem of life and death here and now and the implications from beyond. So the point of contact is something that they're not bringing in things that non-believers aren't sure they even believe about. They're talking about a shared problem, which is mortality. And if we were empowered to share the gospel that way and still know that we're being faithful in doing so, it makes it really, really easy relatively speaking, to speak up with your friends, co-workers, and the rest is saying, dude, we're mortal. How are you going to deal with mortality? Jesus conquered death in a way that Buddha, Muhammad, um, Darwin, whomever, never did. And one of the things that I used to enjoy this, particularly I worked with Buddhists for a long time uh, in Asia, is the falsifiability. That essentially, uh, you have a scientific method here that Jesus... It's not repeatable, so that's one problem. But he objectively says, I can conquer death. He sets up the experiment. 
He does it in such a way that's public. First Corinthians 15, you hear about hundreds of people observing and saying many are still alive to testify to it. He makes his prediction. He dies. He rises. He says, I came clean on what I claimed. No other religion in the world has that sort of falsifiability. If I tell you I'm a really good Japanese speaker, and I start saying, ah, kuriwa nandeska, how many of y'all can really find out whether I'm a good Japanese speaker? Your wife's not here, so we're safe. <laughs> you can't. There's no way to prove unless you got someone to call him out on it. Falsifiability means there's a way to prove him wrong. And Jesus, like, played it big. He says, if I don't come through with resurrection, disregard me. But he wins. So our ultimate hope of completion, then, is going to be that one day we'll be restored to our right order and you'll get to the end of Revelation 21 and 22, which echoes the end of Isaiah 65 and 66, which basically says we enjoy the physical world again. It's not a place of suffering and death and sickness. And we actually enjoy good food and good nature. We don't get that re-emphasized in evangelical churches as much as we should. It's getting better and better all the time. But that's the hope. Micah 4 says you sit on your back porch under your own vine and nobody messes with you. That that's the ultimate promise of the resurrection and everything being made right. It says also that there's peace and we get along and that we actually have access to God. So we'll tell the gospel story one, two, three, and then we'll skip to this completion. Today we want to talk about the overlooked reality of when you say, I agree, Jesus has conquered death, death, and he's my Lord, but I'm not in heaven yet. Life is still hard. I've still got inconsistency issues. Um, I've baptized a lot of people in my life. Um, one of the things that I've learned in counseling people with baptism is they're often at their highest point when they finally agree and they're like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this thing. It's to get them to listen to me and say, I'm really glad you're going to exude confidence and joy when you share your testimony and how you're experiencing change. Please hear me and file this so that you can come back to me in six weeks when you start finding struggles of living up to what you're now saying in your testimony and you feel like a failure and you want to withdraw from the community, please remember what I'm telling you now and come back. Your position has changed. Your habits have not. And what often happens statistically is you'll see people that they'll make that great big public profession, they'll start sharing eagerly, and then they'll find that they don't have the power over sin that they thought they did, and they'll begin to morph and either fit into the church where they don't talk openly and honestly about their struggles anymore, or they'll drift from the church out of shame and defeat. And the deal is, our position has been changed, but our habits have not. Uh, look real quick at 2 Peter chapter 1. The meaning for pointing this out is not to get us down, quite the opposite, that if you're struggling with habit change over time, you're New Testament biblical. You're like, yeah. Second Peter chapter 1. We're not going to 
go through it in length. I just want to point it out real quick. Get your introduction, and then you see a progression of it starts with faith, and then we're supposed to add things. Starts in verse 3. And 3 through 6. In verse 3, what do we have? We, we have everything we need, life and power, to do what? Life and godliness, or to live a godly life. So you guys come here early on a Thursday morning, and you're like saying, if I have access to everything internal dialogue, why am I not getting a better success rate on my godly life? When I focus and I pray and it's coming from the inside out, I really do see some incredible testimony of how Christ has changed my life and I experience the power. When I drift and I'm just listening to talk radio or I'm just getting into email spat or a texting thing or I'm having an issue with my wife as I'm leaving the door or whatever, you start wondering, do I have everything for a godly life? Why is it so hard? And what do you see between verse 3 and verse 6? Specifically, look, um, let's look at the end of verse 4. And because of his glory and excellence, he's given us great and precious promises. These are promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruptions caused by what? Human desires. And you get the same thing in James 4. Why do you church people have fights among yourself? It's because you do, you're not good at desire. That's the argument in, in um, James 4. You don't ask, and when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. Because you are designed all the way from column one with desires. So you desire good food. And, so, and luckily we get to experience that with good uh, Super Bowl snacks. I follow international football, and so I'm having to go back to my childhood memories of growing up in Dallas in my days of Tom Landry and Staubach, and back when we were the good guys and football was something that I could enjoy. And, of course, I just stepped away for a couple decades. Uh, but at least there's the good snacks there. I've got desires. And the problem is we don't know how to handle those, and you don't make them go away you turn them from bad desires to good desires. And we say, how do we do this? And he goes on in this argument, and he says in verse 5, in view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises, add to your faith or supplement your faith with, and then he gives this sequence of things. So basically, your faith is allegiance. Faith is you actually believe Jesus is the one you should be loyal to. And when we, Romans 10, verse 8, Paul says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim, that if you'll confess, confess with your own mouth that Jesus is what? What is that when you say that he's Lord? He's the boss. That's the flat-out translation. Kyrios in Greek means boss in Texan. It really is. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the mouth you confess... With the heart you believe, the mouth you confess, all who invoke the name of the Lord will be saved, verse 13. The thing is you're saying Jesus is the Lord who, of life who conquers death. Faith is more about a declaration of allegiance 
than about some sort of emotional experience. It says, I think Jesus is right. I think Jesus has my loyalty. So, I showed up at boot camp for Marine Corps. Yeah. yeah. Went out and got, like, way too drunk the night before. I'm 18. I think I'm tough because I made an allegiance to the Marine Corps. And I show up with the hangover, which is a stupid thing to do because they don't, like, ease you into it. Got this gangbanger from Chicago who's talking about how the judge gave him a choice to go to jail or join the Marine Corps because he jumped off a curb and broke this guy's legs who had been looking at uh, a girl in their group. And everybody's bad and got swagger and stuff because we made a pledge of allegiance. But once we confront our drill instructors, suddenly we don't even have dominion over our own eyes. And we are freaked out and we are doing everything we're told in that pledge of we believe that being a Marine is something worth doing doesn't mean we suddenly have Marine powers. And they know that and they say, we're going to like break you down, build you back up over the next three months. That's where we should be going here. All right. I got preaching instead of teaching. Sorry. I just think we really want to get good at living out what we believe is true, right? All right, so let's just zoom real quick to this uh, column four. This is what you're called into. What's the heart and the cross correspond to? Yeah, Jesus in your heart, all right? So essentially, you're identifying with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but the Son of God who lives through me. And so you see that in the resurrection there uh, in column three, that now has become our heart, and that's why we put the cross in there, that it's his identity has overtaken my identity. So the most important thing is whether we ever add to our faith anything else or not, like the thief on the cross, he never added anything to his faith, but he was told, you're adopted, you belong. So the adopted child who has no habit change belongs as much as the adopted child who's been there for years and has gone through change. By grace, through faith, no works added to belong. But then we have three arrows above it. Those three arrows are going to explain what a new believer should get good at in order to add to their faith the actual character competency to deal with desires better. Y'all with me on what we want here? Really quickly, uh, look at verse, or not verse, page 19 in the black booklets. These are the three arrows. This is actually probably the biggest need of improvement in our church is when someone is a brand new believer, how do you teach them to study the Bible? How do you teach them how to pray, uh, how to share your faith, or how to serve others? Uh, most of us have been in the church so long it just becomes intuitive. People join the church, and it's kind of hope that it will just kind of soak up along the way. What I'm hoping is you guys will be more conscious of this and be able to explain explicitly to people who are new believers um, what it would mean to add disciplines 
but also that you would have confidence, why do I show up for church? Why do I study the Bible? Why do I pray and worship and go to men serve and stuff? All right, so at the top there of page 19, the arrow pointing backward. Someone read for me there what that uh, arrow pointing backward represents faith. What does that mean? Yep. The number one reason to study the scriptures is not so that you have knowledge to win trivia. The number one reason to study scriptures is to grow in clarity and confidence that God revealed in Jesus is the one you should trust. The number one reason you study your Bible is to grow in confidence that Jesus really is God revealed. That the reason you're alive, the reason you have questions, the reason you have desires, all of that really does find meaning in God revealed in Christ. That's the number one reason. Now, any questions or observations on that one? Is that self-evident in the way that we talk about Bible study? Why do we sometimes tell people we should do Bible study? Growing faith is good. Growing knowledge. Share with others. What are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times we'll skip from now that you're saved, you study the Bible so that you can go argue with other people. Right? So you read the paleo literature so I can go argue with paleo people or with people who aren't paleo yet. That's not the point. The first point is for myself, for others like me, and then to share with others. And one of our problems in Bible study is that we are reading it to win arguments with other people instead of reading it to clarify confidence for ourselves first. Why do we pray and why do we show up for worship service is in the next arrow. So after faith, we look at hope. Hope is a confident assurance that God's trustworthiness means the future is good. We enter this in prayer and worship and celebrating with others whose faith in God has given them hope. So we look backwards in faith when we study the Bible to say, look how God has been faithful all these different ways and times. I should trust him. Therefore, I look forward that one day that everything will be worked out. And the reason then that I pray is I'm declaring what I've learned by study and I'm living in that future hope. And I do it not just by myself, but with others. So we gather together to celebrate one day everything will be made right. Have you ever been to a service and people talk like, you know, it was like the Lord was there. It's like we're living the Revelation song. Every nation, tribe, and tongue is gathered. Do you ever hear that expression? That's an excellent theological basis of going, up, going to church. Study to know it's true. Because it's true, get with other people who know it's true and you're living in that future hope. We are a, a movie trailer, a preview of when society has gone from being tribalistic in us versus them to being reconciled in Christ. And we can trust each other because he has dealt with our attitude and given us this new identity in him. 
Uh, interesting, this is also my position on miracles. That uh, in Hebrews 11, it talks about people who saw miraculous intervention, but it also talks about people who suffered terribly and never got a miracle ever. Miracles are not the way that we're meant to live. Miracles are sample kits. They are previews. They are a trial of saying, here's what the kingdom of God will look like. And so when Jesus shows up, he's like at a convention, and he's throwing out free samples everywhere of saying, when I talk about the kingdom, here's what it looks like. Cripple guy, stand up. You're not crippled. Skin disease, gone. All these things are gone, and demons are cast out, and relations are restored, and people are like, wow, that's what completion is going to look like? And in our church, should we pray for miracles? Yes. Should we guard against making people who die a slow, horrible death of cancer feel bad as if they don't have enough faith? Should we protect against that? Yes. And the spiritual doctrine here is that God occasionally gives reminders of what the future is going to be like, but we are not designed to live in that future full time. And there's no shame in suffering. There's no shame in not receiving a miracle. There's the freedom to ask for it. There's not the freedom to demand it. Lastly, in that section, we want to look at um, the arrow pointing up, love. So on page 19, faith is looking backward, hope is looking forward. So what is love? Love is what life is about, living right here, right now. We give what we have received to make a difference. Time, treasure, talent, serving the king as we advance his cause. Here and now, we are called to follow our king to advance the kingdom of appropriate love. And we do this by grace. Grace is not just forgiveness. Grace is empowering us to live the life that we're supposed to have. So faith, yeah, I'm on the right track. I didn't just receive Jesus because I was raised this way or because I was in a weak moment. Even if that is the case of how I started, I grow in confidence. This is the right decision. As an adult, I own it. I'm not passive. I own it. I celebrate with guys I barely even know because of this future hope that we've got future together. I actually freaked out a lady when I was a new Christian. I feel bad about this one. I was a new Christian. I just got out of the Marine Corps. I went up to Washington State, and I was a, a dishwasher in a Mexican restaurant in a Norwegian fishing village. Sounds like a Garrison Keillor story. And I just read and read and read, tried to become a New Ager, but the food was really bad and the philosophy didn't make any sense. Um, I went to like a harmonic convergence thing. It was really weird. And I kept reading and I just found that the problem of good and evil in existence was explained in Christ better than anything. I had gotten prompted when I spent some time in Israel uh, after a hostage rescue thing that we had done and had some downtime. People shared with me, but I struggled between what churchianity felt like and what the, the grittiness of who Jesus was. Became a Christian. Um, I actually was working at a bouncer in, uh, here in Houston briefly and then went to college. And I'm like, I get my, I, now that I believe, I need to grow, and I don't know how to grow. So I went into a Christian bookstore, and it was looking, and this other lady was also looking, and then I started processing, like, these people also experience what I experienced, which means they've also been forgiven, which means they're also going to be in heaven in the future, which means we're family, 
And all this thoughts running through there, and it was so new to me, I couldn't help it. So I like kind of creeped over. <laughs> You're like, Gabe's like cringing for me. Like, are you a Christian too? Yeah. So you're part of the family of God? Yeah. And so you're going to be in heaven forever too? Me too. We're going to be there together. And suddenly she remembered there was something on her shopping list that was on the other <laughs> aisle. And she like went back there and I felt really creepy. So I got me a new international version because international sounded cool. I didn't know how to choose a Bible. But the reason we grow in our confidence and we celebrate is now... What does it mean to be a Christian? To be like whom? To be like Christ. And what that ultimately means is, in the same way that Christ loved a broken and unjust world, we now, through our confidence and our celebration, are empowered to go and love the way he did. Which means you proclaim in truth and in action to people who are not worthy. While we were yet rebellious sinners, Christ died for us. He lovingly served us. We determined to do the right thing to people who may or may not rightly interpret what we're doing. So widows serve. That, you know, that's obviously relatively easy because it's people who do receive it for what it is. But, man, that's, that's so healthy biblical that we study, we celebrate, and we go do it. The new faith center opened up in Harwin, and we got refugees coming from Burma that I used to work with over in Burma, some of whom have been part of a Christian movement for 160 years, and they've been through torture and horrible things. They've been pushed out, and uh, some of them worship at Timber Grove and stuff. There are co-laborers in the gospel to help us reach others from Muslim backgrounds, from Buddhist backgrounds, from atheist backgrounds. Who They're going to be our neighbors, like it or not. Are we going to engage them courageously with the love of God in Christ and say, hey, let us tell you how to make sense out of life and how to make loyalty in Christ? That's not always easy. Or in these human trafficking intervention programs that we've got, with all the massage parlors and stuff like that, that it's more than a massage. And these girls aren't just there because it's easy. They're there because of some very nefarious reasons. Do we have the courage to stand up against that? Faith, hope, and love shows up all through the New Testament. That's the basics of now that we believe Jesus is Lord and solves the problem of good and evil and pain and suffering, we are going to learn about it, celebrate it, and do something about it. And so that's where this becomes useful to us. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about the crown and the cloud. Specifically, what do we know and not know in regard to suffering? And I've got a cool little movie for it uh, that I'll show you later. But we're out of time for um, me talking. Any other questions on this? Is this? I know it, it gets kind of philosophical, theological. But once you start to get the density, I hope it gets practical. Somebody convince me or at least convince Eric by answering my question that it's practical so yeah. that I look good. Does it start to be practical? It, it is. The transformation, if you, if you misinterpret, you're saved by grace through faith, and then you show up to the church and you wait to die or get raptured. <laughs> and basically, the church becomes a refrigerator so the meat doesn't go bad too soon. 
and you avoid the world and you're so busy that you're just trying to slow the rot by keeping everybody in church and giving all their time and money to the church so they can't go out there and sin. If you get it, you're like, dude, I showed up to church. Somebody better equip me because I got anger issues and lust issues and appetite issues, and I'm not loyal to those, but I want to get trained to overcome those and to be deployed. I don't want to just constantly be told that I should love the world and just give money for other people to love the world. I got people that I have access to in my neighborhood, my business, my network stream. Teach me, equip me, release me, trust me. And that's what we're hoping to do more of. All right, at your tables, if you would. um, Specifically, these two things. Share quickly, what can you do to solidify this message that you take ownership of it? Practice drawing it out, read through it, and restate it in your own ways. Something like that. So at your table, say, what are you guys going to do to practically process this and own it, to make it your own? You can use the pictures or not, but these concepts, they're, they're already yours. This just clarifies it. Secondly, how can you pray for each other as you're trying to live this out? All right? And then we just got about five minutes to do that. Some ideas of how to take ownership and, and memorize this, use this, and then how to pray for each other as you do that. Thanks. All right. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I don't apologize at all for the conversation and the round the tables. Um, it, this is... I hope y'all are seeing how this thing weaves into our daily life and how we as men, we, we do struggle. And I, I love this, and I thank you for this. And if you, if you don't have a book, please take this book and just a homework assignment this week is read through the book. So he's, he's adding flesh and blood and everything onto the skeleton. That book is bare bones in a really good way with a lot of Scripture and then he's been unpacking some of that scripture for us with a lot more color to it, and it's awesome. And then you can go back and listen to, if you're unclear of one of these, you can go back and listen to some of the previous weeks. And I know it's like, well, Eric, why, why all of this? And let me just tell you, it would be like Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player I think we've seen, but maybe not the best coach. I think that was an example you'd used earlier. But God's got us here not just for, for self-preservation, We are here to advance this kingdom, so we must be able to lead and love other people well toward the things of God, not away from the things of God, not yelling someone into the kingdom of God. You won't find it that way in Scripture. There is a wooing, a serving, a loving, a guiding. It's a and so I'm just encouraging y'all to, if you feel, man, I got this and I understand this and this just makes so much sense in my life right now and. That's awesome. And man, Russell hung the moon. I'm like, you would be failing the reason we even asked him to come here, which is not just for us to live well, but that we are to help lead and train the other people that we encounter every single day. And if we don't do it, my question would be, who will? That God's chosen methodology to transform this world is through humble servant leaders who will invest their heart and soul and blood and guts to those other people. So, so hear my heart on that. I'm not, you know, I'm not like railing and angry at you. I'm pleading with you that I've asked him to come in because that's my desire. And it's our church's desire that we would be difference makers. And that doesn't mean 
you know, the smartest guy in the room. It often means asking an appropriate question and letting the spirit work in someone because he's infinitely wise and good and loving. And I'm not, I don't have an answer to every question, but I can testify and I can humbly live out and I can ask God to move those mountains. And so uh, let's pray as we, as we wrap up here. Father God, you are good and you are worthy of any ounce of our strength, any thought in our brain, any time that we have, Lord. And we know that you're not absent, you're not silent. Father, you are with us and you are mighty to save. And so, Father God, would you be at work in us and, Father, through us around the men and the women, the situations today, some of which will be just train wreck situations, God, at work or office politics or someone pulls in front of us in traffic, God, or, or maybe there's marital discord or a wayward kid. God, in all of it, and we're living column four right now, Lord. <laughs> so, so in column four, uh, would you allow us to have that courage to walk with you today, to speak, to love, to listen, to proclaim goodness and mercy to others. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. See the set you free inside.